Hello and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the food that makes it from the world's longest running conference on food, the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether, and we hope you've been enjoying season one of this podcast. This is the last episode before season two this fall, so if you haven't yet, there's still time to go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And make sure to stay subscribed and follow us on social media. There is lots of fun stuff ahead. Now on to today's story. The history of barbecue. Backyard barbecue, to be precise. And that story starts in Los Angeles. This is Charles Perry. I'm a retired food writer, and I'm the founder and uh, apparently president for life of the Culinary Historians of Southern California. Charles is also one of the longest-running contributors to the Oxford Food Symposium, and was even at the very first one in 1981. Charles grew up in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, where his family has been for four generations. Fourth generation uh, Southern Californian, which is a little bit rare. So I've been I've been particularly interested in the earlier history of uh, Los Angeles because I had this family connection. Regularly, Charles is a scholar of medieval cookbooks from the Middle East, but he decided one year to write a paper for the symposium about his hometown's history. Because, besides Hollywood, L.A.'s early years are not something that a lot of people, even Angelinos themselves, know much about. Well, that's the thing about Los Angeles. It's, it's, a, it's a prodigy city. In 1880, the population was uh, 12,000. Uh, Fifty years later, it was a million and a quarter. And it's kept on growing, and so it just does not have much of a sense of its history, uh, uh, unless it has to do with the movies, and by movies I mean the talkies. But even before the talkies... The City of Angels had a very different cultural and economic phenomenon driving its prodigious growth, and that was cattle. This was the late 1700s. The United States Declaration of Independence was just in the works, and most of the West was still in a state of flux. Spain, who was the colonial ruler of most of present-day Mexico, felt a growing pressure to expand its territory for a number of reasons. In the, in the um, late 18th century, Spain, having ignored everything north of Mexico for the preceding 200 years, decided that it was going to move into those areas, and it decided that uh, Texas and California were going to raise cattle. Not for the meat, but for the hides and tallow, which were important in the Mexican economy at the time. In the case of California, they, were also, they also had in mind the fact that um, Russia had been expanding into North America and into Alaska and had set up trading posts down the coast, and it wanted to put a stop to that. <clears throat> and so they brought these cattle, um, these longhorn cattle, very self-reliant. You can you'd scarcely need any herding at all. They can take care of themselves. You know, coyotes should be in danger of them. And not only did the Spanish bring in cattle, but they brought in people to raise them, mostly Spaniards directly from Spain, but also some who had been living in Mexico for a time. This influx of humans and cattle, it bears mentioning, was the beginning of centuries of violence towards the indigenous peoples of California, whose population was decimated from hundreds of thousands to less than 50,000 by the late 1800s. And unlike the indigenous people who knew how to live off the land, the new ranchers needed a reliable food source to maintain their colonies. And luckily, one was right there, the meat of all that cattle. All this, they had all these cattle, and they were just slaughtering for them, them for the hides and tallow. The meat was a free byproduct. What you didn't eat, you'd give to the dogs, and what the dogs didn't eat, you'd throw out and let the coyotes eat it. The thing is that their meat is very tough, but in Mexico, these, the Spaniards had learned of a cooking technique, which is actually 
One of the most ancient cooking techniques of all goes back to the Stone Age. While in Mexico, the Spaniards had observed Aztec cooks burying large catches of fish or deer in pits dug into the ground. They'd dig a pit about five feet deep, line the bottom with rocks, and then build a hardwood fire in it for about seven hours or more. Let it burn down to coals, then put big chunks of meat right down on the coals and then cover the pit. The meat would cook for eight to ten hours, sealed in tight over the super hot rocks and coals, the connective tissue melting and the previously tough flesh becoming juicy and tender. Aromatic gases emitted from the hardwood landed a delicious taste with no smoke. And this is a method that was known by the entire human race. There are evidences of its youth on every continent except Antarctica. However, it tended to die out because of the danger of the fire opposed to, you know, you have a huge blazing fire leaping eight, ten feet in the air. Um, and danger to fields and um, uh, houses and things like that. And also, it's um, very, very tiresome. You have to dig that pit. And it's expensive. You have to get um, about a third of a cord of hardwood. You, can, you can't use softwood or the uh, meat uh, will taste like tar. And then you've got to wait seven hours for the fire to be ready to put the meat in, and then you've got to cover it and wait another seven hours. So it's laborious, time-consuming, and expensive. And these are three things cooks hate. Despite the drawbacks, the method did have utility for the new Californian ranchers, with a surplus of almost inedibly tough beef. And so a tradition of earth pit oven cooking gained traction on the missions of old California. This period of California's history became known as the Days of the Dawns, named for the masters of the Spanish Catholic missions that oversaw the ranches. The ranchers began to call their adopted tradition of pit cooking barbacoa, which clearly sounds very similar to the word barbecue. Now this is where we have to become a little bit wordy. Because, remember, the Spaniards had learned this pit oven cooking technique from the Aztecs, but barbacoa was not the Aztec word for pit oven cooking. So where did the word barbacoa come from? Further back in Spanish colonial history, it turns out. The word barbacoa had entered into the Spanish language centuries earlier, when Spain first invaded the Caribbean and encountered the Taino, a large indigenous society spanning the region that encompasses present-day Cuba, Trinidad, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and Hispaniola. When the Spaniards came to uh, the Caribbean, they found the people were doing... Barbecue originally met a kind of a framework, and you put a, set up this framework, you put a fire under it, and they would particularly use fish there, and it was partly a way of drying fish for preserving it, and also partly cooking it, and it would also get a little bit smoky. Uh, that uh, dried fish, that sort of fish jerky was called bucan, and that's where the buccaneers got their names, because the, the pirates of the Caribbean, that was what they ate mostly on shipboard. So barbacoa originally meant a framework made of green twigs that the taino would place over a fire to cook and partially smoke catches of fish. And, um, and anyway, the, uh, the Spaniards saw this, and they saw the similarities to their tradition of the, the brazier. It's a small grill used for little items in medieval cooking. But here was this thing that was done outdoors, so on, uh, in principle, the grill could be any size at all. They started making metal-framed barbacoas that were larger and more robust than the green saplings. And the practice, along with the word, got adopted into Spanish colonial society, Charles says, as early as the 1500s. From the 1600s onward, 
there was a lot of trade between the Spanish and new British North American colonies, and barbacoa became popular, particularly on plantations in the South. The barbecue chefs on the plantations, of course, had all been slaves, since all the cooking on the plantations was done by slaves. And these guys were really good at what they did, and they were not going to let their skills uh, die out. So they came up with, with ways of barbecuing meat in an enclosure so that the meat would, um, it would be more parsimonious of fuel, and also it would cook at a low temperature so you could cook tough cuts of meat like the ribs and the brisket. This cooking style usually had the meat set on a gridwork over hot coals, with the whole thing enclosed, either underground or in metal enclosures. It had a similar effect as the earth pit oven barbecue of rendering tough cuts juicy, but the coals tended to char the meat, imparting a flame-broiled and smoky taste. Typically, whole pigs or goats, and sometimes even beef, was cooked this way. Now that, that sort of barbecue died out in the North after the Civil War just because of the, um, the new way of life the new industrialized way of life, all the newcomers from Europe and so forth. But it continued in the South in that new way in the, as the southern, southern Pit Barbecue. And the Southern Pit Barbecue lives on, a central facet of Southern culinary identity, distinct from other forms of barbecue. Uh, the, in most forms of barbecue, except Southern Barbecue, the word barbecue means the cooking method and the meat that's cooked and the social event. In Southern Barbecue, you eat at a restaurant. So by the 1760s in Old California, and by the time the Mission Padres started cooking their longhorns in earth pit ovens, the word barbacoa, or its anglicized barbecue, was already widely in use in colonies across North America. So, Charles says, it would have been an easy reach for what to call this new earth pit cooking technique in Old California. The name stuck. And from the original barbacoa of the Taino, two genealogies of American cooking techniques emerged. The Southern Pit Barbecue and... Well, let's get back to California and see what happens. A hundred years after the first rancher, Earth Pit barbecued the first Longhorn, Los Angeles in the 19th century saw things changing. California became a state in 1850, and with that came a huge influx of Anglo-Americans from the East. Some went north to San Francisco and further, hoping to strike gold, but those who came south to Los Angeles might have been chasing the romantic stories written in the books about the days of the dawns and the wild life that awaited them there. Los Angeles had a, a virulent cult of romanticism about that period. There was a novel uh, called Ramona, a novel of the missions, which had been written by a woman who want, she had wanted it to be the Uncle Tom's Cabin of California. And there were places around town that, uh, that claimed to be where Ramona had lived. And when I was a kid, there were, there were four copies of Ramona in my little local library because at one time it had been in such demand. Ramona wasn't a true story, and a lot of what it depicted about Los Angeles' life on the missions was highly romanticized. But, as Charles says, the story stuck in people's minds and colored the way Los Angeles and its ranching culture was thought of for decades, even after it started to disappear. And the cattle ranching culture pretty much died out in Northern California, but uh, we had a real shortage of gold down here, so the ranching culture continued down to the 1870s. 
And in the 1870s, the railroads went through, and we had started having a lot of people moving to Los Angeles. And as part of living here, uh, they decided to make this uh, earth pit barbecue, this barbacoa, into a point of pride. And they also saw it as a, uh, as, as, as the city began uh, rapidly filling up with Anglos, uh, they began to romanticize the days of the Dons and the Mission Padres. And this kind of barbecue was seen as a precious link to that. And what better way to symbolize the wildness of old California ranches than an earth pit barbecue? The new Californians embraced this new social event wholeheartedly. There were people who thought that it was appropriate to wear a sombrero when you went to a barbecue. These barbecues were huge. When you're cooking this with this method, there's pretty much no point doing it unless you're cooking for a large number of people uh, because it's so expensive and so time-consuming and so forth. And um, so in the, from the 1880s down to the 1930s, barbecues in Los Angeles uh, typically served hundreds of people. The average would between, be between 500 and 1,500 people at a barbecue. What was more, another style emerged within the Los Angeles barbecue fad, which further captured the sombrero-wearing imaginations of the new Angelinos. And this was to barbecue an entire head of a cow, along with the barbecue. This tradition became known as the bull's head breakfast. Um, the tongue was heavily peppered with oregano, and it would have been as soft as pudding. Beef tongue as soft as pudding and smoky. So uh, it was, uh, it was, they referred to bull's heads as toothsome, and uh, they were highly regarded, and also they were a way of honoring the guest because there's only one head to a, a, a cow. And uh, so the, they, the, the, a cult developed in the 1880s, and they, they reached a crescendo in 1912 when they were having the, the, the bull's head barbecues with uh, 20 bull's heads and things like that. The Bull's Head was an exciting story that New Angelinos could write about to their families in New England. And the breakfast was mostly a timing concern. If you started the fire around 6 o'clock in the evening, uh, the, the pitmen could uh, cover up the pit and go home around 2 a.m., a reasonable hour. And then you could take it out at 10. You could take it out uh, in the afternoon if you wanted. Political functions, fundraisers, even real estate promotions were only some of the reasons a Bull's Head breakfast might be organized. Oh, there'd be all sorts of events. Um, for one thing, if you were going to have a visit from a, um, a dignitary from out of town, you'd want to have one of these barbecues to throw down a little Los Angeles style, show them how we, how we roll around here. There'd be benches upon benches set out, and everyone would eat together outside, the tasty meat accompanied by music and many, many side dishes. You would have tortillas. Uh, you would have some salads. You might have... Um, some frijoles, um, and you could have you could have other things as well. Often they had uh, they would have some um, chili. Uh, you could make uh, chili con carne out of the cuts of beef that were uh, too tough that were well or a waste of time to put in the pit for one reason or another. Bulls had breakfasts were huge. The biggest one on record was organized by the barbecue chef Joe Romero, who served more than thirty thousand people on the same day. But as the 19th century rolled over into the 20th, things started to change. Los Angeles started to change. Well, what happened is that the, um, the, the, the cult of barbecue, and particularly of the barbecue, bull's head barbecue, tracks pretty closely with the cult of Ramona and the, the, the insane um, 
enthusiasm for uh, old California. And uh, when people stopped uh, reading Ramona all the time was about when the, the, the barbecue started to decline. The last Bull's Head barbecue was in 1928. And uh, in the 20s, when you said barbecue in Los Angeles, people still thought, well, you know, we've we got to dig a pit and then build a fire for seven hours. But there were also people who were cooking steaks on a grill in their backyard and calling it barbecue. I don't know why. Well, actually, Charles does know why. A few things happened to precipitate this. First, the Great Depression began. Suddenly, people weren't in the mood for regular bacchanalias. But secondly, and most importantly, there was something else that had come in and was sweeping California off of its feet. And that was Hollywood. Years ago, a peaceful orange grove lay through the sun of Southern California. Today, that orange grove is Hollywood, city of dreams for boys and girls all over the world. Well, Hollywood, uh, it's, actually, the story is pretty well known. People, um, people came out from New York where the... Um, the inventors of the movie technique um, wanted to control it themselves. Moving picture technology was new, and its inventors, people like Thomas Edison, wanted to cash in on their inventions by creating proprietary technology for viewing. Um, Thomas Edison didn't want to uh, show, show things on a screen. He wanted you to look into a little thing called the um, Nickelodeon. And um, there were people who wanted to make movies, and they were... Um, they didn't want to have to pay all the licensing fees, fees and like that, and so they just escaped California to, to do things unobserved. And turn out California was a lot better for making movies because of the clear weather. You can do things outside all the time. And also, there's a beach, there's a mountains, there's a desert, there's a great variety of uh, scenery that you can use. By the 1920s, Hollywood was already one of the biggest economies in Los Angeles. Right, right. It was Hollywood, oranges, and oil. And this totally shook up the social order, especially for the socialite class of Los Angeles, because suddenly all of these Hollywood producers and stars were getting rich, too. Which was something new because rich people had always disdained um, show folk in the past. Uh, you know, the Catholic cemeteries would not bury actors in hallowed ground. And um, what, had, what was different was now that entertainment was not a marginal thing in Los Angeles. It was one of the three biggest industries in town. That changed everything. And so the, um, the actors, I mean, the actors and the studio owners and so forth, and the society uh, guys used to like to ride horses in Griffith Park. Suddenly, Hollywood bigwigs and L.A. socialites started to mingle on the horse trails in Griffith Park. It's the, the large, you know, um, huge area of uh, mountainous terrain where there's lots of trails. Hey, anybody could go there, but uh, you had to be rich to own a horse. On the trails, all kinds of chummy activities went on, including an emerging tradition of having casual trailside cookouts, grilling steaks over little fires, and eating them al fresco. They met on the trail, they developed the habit of um, cooking steaks over a gathered fire of uh, you know, gathered sticks. But, I mean, these people, these movie moguls and these rich society guys they could go to any restaurant in town but they preferred to go out into the, the woods into the, the brush and cook a steak over a little fire of twigs 
That's casual. They called this the Breakfast Club, and the image of carefree trailside grilling of steak seemed to capture people's imaginations, much in the same way the Bulls had breakfast did. And uh, I think that is why originally you hear of people doing grills in their backyards in the 1920s, and just a little bit, in the 1930s more and more. Um, and particularly in society, people's uh, backyards and in uh, uh, places of uh, uh, people in Hollywood. They started building these huge outdoor brick fireplaces that had a grill you could cook your steak over. There was a guy named Billy Hayes who lived here in the San Fernando Valley, and he liked to flip the steaks himself wearing an apron and a chef's hat. He's the guy who started the uniform of the backyard barbecuer. Before that time, you would have your cook flip the steaks. Billy and other celebrities' backyard barbecues became the ideal 1930s California lifestyle, a mix of casual, unfussy, and elegant. In the 1930s, of course, people had this obscure sense that they'd been having too much fun in the 20s and they now were being punished. And so everything became more low-key, and now the ideal was to be uh, suave and elegant. And, um, you know, uh, the idea of being invite, able to invite people as if on the spur of the moment for a steak was very appealing. And so people who couldn't afford to build one of these things uh, would do otherwise. Um, <clears throat> Sunset Magazine gave in its first instructions for making a barbecue. It means get a, get a dozen bricks. And when you want to do a barbecue, arrange them into this little fireplace and take a, a rack from your oven and put that on top. And then people... Uh, fairly early on started uh, to invent um, metal barbecues that you didn't have to, you didn't need a, uh, you didn't, uh, didn't need to own your house. If you were living in, a, in an apartment, uh, you could uh, put this out on your balcony or something like that. And as they say, the rest is history. With the help of Hollywood promoting the alluring images of the California lifestyle, the cult of the backyard barbecue soon spread beyond the valleys. And after World War II, it spread around the country uh, very rapidly. As a matter of fact, it spread around the world. Uh, you know, we know it went to Australia and, and Canada. And even though an intimate backyard barbecue was a far cry from a swarming bull's head breakfast, Charles says its success was similar in that it played on the desire for the association with something grander, more romantic, more California. Because also... Um, as we were losing our uh, romance of uh, the days of the Dons, that was partly because we realized that we had s something local that was m even more romantic, which was Hollywood. I mean, who wants to limit yourself to some dusty old ranchos? Every fantasy in the world went through Hollywood. And so people no longer cared so much about the, the, the days of the Dons. And so uh, this new kind of barbecue was, since it was, it was directly associated with Hollywood. Uh, that, that was one of the reasons why it succeeded so quickly. Thanks to our guest, Charles Perry. You can find his paper from the 2011 Symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided in our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and engineered by Thomas Krauss. Editorial oversight is provided by the brilliant Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. Special thanks in this episode to Joel Stein and KCRW in Los Angeles, as well as Richard Foss from the Culinary Historians of Southern California. 
The show is made possible both by the friends and the board of trustees of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, with a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, and for a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter, at Oxford Food Simp, and Instagram, at Oxford Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us, and please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. We are a new show, and it really helps. And that's it for Season 1. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the stories we've shared. Keep following us and stay subscribed. We will be back in the fall of this year with a whole new lineup for season two of Vox Tales. See you then.